Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Uh, you're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe Prashad. Uh, and, and I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Uh, technology always seems to come at me at the worst possible point. But Prashant, at least I'm not the president of France. I have small technological problems. He seems to have a legitimacy crisis ongoing, more and more rioting, violence in France. Um, what's been happening in France? Well, Vijay, I think the visuals have been uh, quite uh, shocking, quite, and I think widely telecasts across the world, the footage the kind of mass upsurge that we are definitely seeing in France. And, you know, you're sort of, I think, reminded of many such incidents in many parts of the world, including the United States, where uh, this has been one of those, uh, I think, emblematic uh, incidents of uh, racist violence, of police violence, all the more so because the footage uh, of this incident is, you know, it makes it very clear. The fact that a 17-year-old teenager was shot to death at a traffic st uh, stop and I think there have been a number of stories about his back, you know, about how he comes from very poor. Of course, he's French Algerian. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, which in fact has been used by right wing sections to mount a very violent racist campaign. But I think what it also overall demonstrates is how the French state, the French police in particular, have treated minorities. And that I think is what has spurred this kind of mass upsurge. So, uh, you know, it's more, I think, systemic rather than. Uh, just one incident, which is what has happened in many instances, even uh, even with the George Floyd, Floyd protests, it's what we saw. The one incident, of course, being the uh, point at which it starts, but this follows a vast uh, you know, a trajectory, so to speak, of very similar incidents. I believe that last year, 13 people were killed in France in uh, traffic uh, stops. And this really sort of begs the question, how is it, you know, how does it happen that in today's time and age, people are shot uh, by the police at uh, traffic stops for you know uh, it, it just it's just really difficult to conceive of and I think that is uh, and of course <clears throat> again this uh, being shot at a traffic uh, stop is not an isolated incident in the sense that it is part of a structural pattern of uh, people <clears throat> feeling disenfranchised people feeling discriminated against people feeling left behind by a state which is withdrawn in so many ways uh, it is withdrawn from social services it is withdrawn. Uh, and, but on the other hand, it continues to sort of use armed force as a way to sort of that becomes the only engagement people have with the state in many cases. And I think that is what we see here again, the fact that for so many millions of people in France and countries across the world, we have uh, basically uh, them, them left largely to themselves, really struggling, uh, facing a variety of social and economic crises, and then often running into a very violent, militarized and vindictive state. So I think that is the grounding for the kind of protests uh, that we are seeing uh, across the country. And the fact is that, of course, the individual officer has been charged with voluntary manslaughter, I believe. Uh, uh, you know, Macron is probably making all the right noises at this point, calling it an unforgivable incident, etc., etc. But uh, this crisis is something way beyond uh, uh, just words and you know thoughts and prayers, as they say because uh, it is farm and we have of course also seen the fact that uh, there is widespread disenchantment and discontent in France at this point of time. This follows of course months of 
protests by workers who have been very angry at the government. Some years ago, we, should, we saw the Gilets Jaunes or the Yellow West protests, another set of, uh, you know, uh, mass, you know, another mass upsurge against the government. So France is right, you know, France is very much in the midst of that cycle of widespread dissatisfaction from various sections across uh, about this kind of uh, uh, against the government, against the state. And uh, I think in some senses, uh, you know, to maybe even extend the point further, it's really a question about the so-called democracies of today, the so-called liberal states of today, which have just completely let down the citizens. So very tragic incident, a young man, a complicated young man, of course, like all of us uh, are in various ways whose uh, life was so tragically cut short in such a completely brutal manner uh, by the fact that, and of course, the fact that uh, the, the other direct reason for this is the 2017 law, which makes it uh, easier for, which we expanded the scope of armed violence by the police as well. So, uh, you know, you have, uh, say, the, the state sanctioning, in, in its own way, the state sanctioning this kind of violence. So uh, the, I, I would, I'm not at all surprised by the scale of protests in many of these, in many countries like France, all it often takes is an incident like this, uh, which unfortunately, an unfortunate incident like this, which then leads to these kind of mass protests. So, uh, like you said, I think uh, no easy answers for Macron, and it's not an accident. I don't, and I don't think, even think it's because he's individually incapable of. He's been a bad president, undoubtedly, mm -hmm. but I think also the fact that the structural issues are what has brought things to the stage. Tough for the French people. The mother of the uh, kid who was killed came out and asked for a peaceful demonstration. That's simply not the mood. Uh, not the mood. Well, the mood is anger. Um, in Brazil, you know, where there was an election, Mr. Lula won the election. Zoe, he defeated the former president, Jair Bolsonaro. Mr. Bolsonaro, one thought, had gone into exile in Miami, where, all, where people like him often go. Turns out there's now a ruling in the courts in Brazil about Mr. Bolsonaro. Tell us about that ruling. Well, if there's anyone uh, less appreciated or less liked than Macron, it's probably Jair Bolsonaro. Um, and he's currently today in the next couple of hours, essentially will be decided if he is ineligible to participate politically, electorally for the next eight years. Um, and this ruling uh, comes up because of a violation uh, which occurred during his presidential campaign or just before the official campaign and essentially was a campaign event. He called on ambassadors from several countries to come to the presidential palace. And he gave a very elaborate uh, presentation using an extreme amount of fake news, an extreme amount of li literal lies, um, videos, etc., to tell them that the electronic voting system in Brazil was unreliable, it was prone to fraud, and that whatever result happened in October during the Brazilian uh, elections would be fraudulent. And we covered this quite uh, closely, People's Dispatch, um, you know, on the ground in Brazil, seeing how far uh, Bolsonaro was taking this lie. Uh, I went myself to, to one of his rallies in Sao Paulo, and the main message that people had, his supporters had, was that this is a, a fraudulent system. And this is this was his whole platform, essentially. And so in this meeting, um, he's being investigated and he's really, uh, this decision is being taken if he's politically ineligible because 
he violated uh, electoral laws. And he essentially used, the accusation is that he used public funds, he used a public channel, a public building um, to spread lies and put in jeopardy the electoral process. And so it's interesting because, you know, with the cases of, for example, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro, they're accused of so many things. They've committed so many crimes, um, but it is, they often overthink these technicalities. I mean, uh, Bolsonaro, he, so many things. And he, when he actually held this meeting, it was very widely criticized and including uh, US members of Congress were very quick to respond to what was a complete violation of not only the electoral laws, but uh, essentially trying to undermine this electoral process by bringing these ambassadors, using what was supposed to be a sort of political uh, diplomatic meeting, and he made it completely about the elections. And so he's actually paying for that right now. And, and yesterday the vote began, there's already three votes against him. In the next hour, as I said, uh, for those of you who are listening later, you'll probably the decision will already be out once you hear this. Um, but uh, the last vote will come through, and uh, if that if they vote in favor of his ineligibility, Bolsonaro will not be able to participate in elections for the next eight years. And it's important to say that the the last vote is coming from someone who voted in favor of absolving uh, Lula um, during during his process. So. Uh, this will be very interesting. We've seen Bolsonaro really play the victim in this, saying all sorts of things. But again, the, the reception of that he's received by the Brazilian people anytime he's gone to a public event since returning to Brazil has been crowds and crowds of people yelling all sorts of things against him, not only because of this, uh, these violations of the electoral law, but because of his his genocidal treatment of the Brazilian people during the COVID-19 pandemic because of so many other things. So this could be a big celebration with Brazilian people. There have been many, many memes, which people can see. Brasil de Fato did an article about how the big news of today is the intense amount of memes that have been made about Bolsonaro. We'll be following it. And you can check people's dispatch by the end of the day. We'll probably have an update on what happens with this vote. Very serious situation in Brazil, but now looking north of Brazil to the island of Haiti, um, it's at a very important inflection point. You know, last October, um, Haiti's interim prime minister, Ariel Henry, it's really hard to talk about how one should refer to the people in government in Haiti because um, th this is not really a, a mandated government. Nonetheless, in October, Ariel Henry asked the United Nations, asked the Security Council to take action. He called for a kind of military deployment, you might remember, uh, into the country. The state has essentially uh, vacated itself. Well, interestingly, um, the UN Human Rights Council nominated a US-based um, or U US national, uh, William O'Neill, to be a special um, rapporteur, effectively to go to Haiti on behalf of the UN Human Rights Council and do a report. William O'Neill is an interesting man. He's a US lawyer. He's um, played an important role in the UN mission in Kosovo, was also deployed in the 1990s in Haiti. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, Mr. O'Neill uh, speaks a little Haitian Creole, which he used during his statement um, regarding his report. But I, I'm going to come back to his role 
in the 1990s in Haiti because um, that's an important part of this story. Well, let's quickly rehearse. Why is Haiti in such bad shape today? And it is in very difficult situation. Uh, for that, of course, one needs to have a history lesson again. In 1804, the Haitian people overthrew the planter class and established an independent country. Well, to some extent independent. The French um, you know, imposed indemnities on the Haitian people. In other words, the Haitian people were asked to pay for their own liberation. There was a large debt placed on Haiti. That debt was eventually purchased by the Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, which then enforced the collection of the debt. In fact, the Haitian people from around the early 1800s right till the mid 1900s were paying off this indemnity, quite a large indemnity. Around the time when the indemnity became relatively small, when the Haitians at great cost uh, had paid off the banks, um, there was a, a coup in Haiti and the Duvalier family came, came into power back fully by the United States. That was Papa Doc and Baby Doc. Um, incubated during the period of Baby Doc was a popular movement which was able to remove the dictatorship and twice elected um, a former uh, man of the cloth, in a way, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Mr. Aristide has the unique distinction of having been cooed twice by the United States. I, I don't believe in modern history uh, we have another elected figure who was twice the victim of a coup. Um, Mr. Aristide, in that sense, quite unique uh, in having been cooed twice. Um, the Haitian government, after the second coup against Mr. Aristide, was put together with the United States. Um, in the 1990s, the United States had, in fact, uh, intervened almost directly. Uh, and Mr. William O'Neill, who is now the UN's, um, you know, charge, as it were, on Haiti, uh, was there in the 1990s. And during the 1990s, Mr. O'Neill uh, oversaw the creation of the Haitian police. Uh, this is a very important point which is being missed out uh, of much of the discussion around his report, which came out, um, you know, uh, in, in late June. Um, well, Mr. O'Neill participated in creating this police force. It was claimed that it was going to be a human rights type of police force. Anything but, in fact, the national police in Haiti has been charged with a great number of violations. Okay, so... Then when Haiti, even under a limited government, tried to improve its conditions, the United States put a lot of pressure on it not to improve or increase the minimum wage in any way or improve working conditions in maquiladora type factories across Haiti. I'm giving you this history lesson to show you that Haiti is not some country which has been perennially in a crisis. It has tried to lift itself up. Every time it tries to do that, it has been pushed down again. Uh, and here comes Mr. O'Neill, and he says quite correctly, if I could just read from the report, he says quite correctly, I found a country bruised by violence, misery, fear, and suffering. It's a very sincere type report, but then he says that what the country needs is the deployment of a specialized international force. He says this deployment, a specialized international force, must be coordinated in close collaboration with the police in order to allow them to build their capacity over the long term with all the guarantees of human rights due diligence. Human rights due diligence, not from that police force. It is one of the reasons why people have been on the streets protesting over and over again. Surprising the UN didn't disclose 
that Mr. O'Neill is one of the creators of that police. Very much hope that there is no new intervention into Haiti. What the country needs, of course, is sovereignty, not more UN interventions. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Prashant and Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Back on the election track, Zoe. Here's Guatemala. What's happening there? Well, interesting, interesting weekend last weekend in Guatemala. Uh, the first round of the, the elections were held, um, and it was defined that there will be a runoff election in August between the former First Lady Sandra Torres and sociologist uh, Bernardo Arevalo. Uh, but this is not really the main story of these elections. The main story is the fact that a large part of the voting, um, the voting population in Guatemala did not participate in these elections. Um, and even those who participated, a large number of them uh, cast blank ballots or null ballots. Um, and so that's, that's really the focus of these elections. Um, who was able to participate and able to contest in these elections was actually not even uh, democratic because there were several candidates that were essentially excluded from these elections. So in the past several months leading up to this whole process, there has been a lot of, uh, there's been protests, there's been consistent uh, public statements being made by different progressive political parties, but also centrist, right-wing, people who are very upset about how this electoral process is taking place. It's one wherein people have been excluded on very, very minor technicalities, some technicalities which have been made up, um, documents that they say they have not been submitted, but have. Um, and so when the people of Guatemala were coming to these elections, it's in this context of the fact that some of the most popular candidates, for example, Thelma uh, Cabrera, um, for the movement of the liberation of peoples, who's been extremely popular and has been really rising in this past year uh, with her movement, uh, she was excluded from these elections not excluded, for example, was Zuri Rios, who's the daughter of Efraim Rios, who's a former dictator in Guatemala, which really, uh, he was responsible for the genocide of the Mayan indigenous people in Guatemala. This is kind of the scenario with which people are dealing. This is also coming on uh, after two very, very corrupt presidents who uh, first, uh, most recently, who's finishing his mandate now, Alejandro Giamate, before him, Jimmy Morales, who dismantled the UN investigation and committee into corruption in the country. This was maintained by the president right now. So this is a situation of, as Prashant spoke about before, where the liberal state, this liberal democracy, no longer means anything. You can't talk about democracy in Guatemala in a country where candidates that have been that have gone through all of the steps to be on the ballot, that have gotten the signatures, that have filed their documents, are then excluded from the process. And so, uh, and, and also a situation where those who have committed extreme acts of corruption, Guatemala has some of the highest indexes or ranks the highest and not a good way <laughs> in terms of corruption committed in the country, and they have dismantled the possibility for an outside investigation protected those who have committed these acts of corruption. And so this doesn't necessarily, um, you know, generate trust and confidence in this electoral process. That being said, in August, Sandra Torres, Arevalo are going to face off in these elections. 
to be honest, not much different between the two, not much difference between the two candidates. Centrists probably going to maintain the same uh, system of, uh, you know, exclusion of, of rights, denial of rights. Maybe, uh, so Arevalo is an anti-corruption activist. How will this actually play out in the concrete? Will he reactivate the UN Commission against um, corruption? Will he take other measures? This remains to be seen. But at the end of the day, these aren't candidates that the people wanted. Um, and the major message from these elections is that the people do not have faith in these in this electoral process, and they did not feel represented in this process. Well, um, Guatemala had a tough history as well. A lot of killings in the 1980s, the so-called dirty wars. It's going to be a real journey for that country to establish, um, you know, some something that benefits the people. It's a terrible history of that country. A Prashant, tough history for Mali as well. Referendum on whether to return to elections. Very good story at People's Dispatch by Pavan Kulkarni. Tell me, what's happened with the referendum in Mali? But also, uh, right now, breaking news, I believe, because today was the day when the UN Security Council voted on the continuation of the peacekeeping force there. And uh, from reports, it does seem like the peacekeeping force is winding up and will withdraw in six months, which was what the, I mean, I might be wrong here, this is just what Twitter is showing over the past few minutes, but which is what the, uh, what the Malian government had demanded as well. There was a great deal of uh, unhappiness in Mali about the presence of these uh, UN peacekeeping forces. And uh, the Malian government had uh, said that basically they were in fact contributing to the problem, which is you know kind of ironic when you talk about uh, Haiti earlier as well, where there was a similar situation. But uh, it's interesting uh, times for Mali as well, very tough, but interesting times because we saw the referendum take place on 18th of June. And as that story will tell you, and it goes into some depth into the kind of uh, constitutional changes that were made as a result of this referendum. Now, I think one of the significant aspects is that, uh, you know, it, it changes the state structure a bit. It brings the Senate. It declares that Mali is a unitary state as opposed to a federal one. And, uh, you know, it brings the Senate to uh, encompass or manage some of the diversity uh, that, you know, is uh, that is very much present in Mali. Uh, the president's position also in some sense is being strengthened, but an option to impeach the president also being added to the constitution. Uh, secularism reiterated, of course, uh, some new measures for financial accountability brought in. But all this is pretty much laying the stage for elections that are going to be held in 2024. And that will move uh, the rule back to civilian rule. And I think now it's essential to go back to some history because uh, Mali in 2020 saw a coup by military officers, uh, which deposed President uh, Ibrahim Abu Bakr Keita, now who was elected, but who had become very, very unpopular because uh, of the declining security situation in the country, uh, Islamist emergency, uh, uh, Islamist uh, groups, of course, sort of, you know, wreaking havoc and extremist groups capturing large parts of the territory. And uh, uh, Abu Bakr Keita's strategy was basically to collaborate with the French on this. And the French had brought in troops uh, to, as part of its G5 Sahel project, uh, you know, brought in soldiers to combat Islamist insurgencies, as they call it, but was not really able to do much. Uh, of course, again, a small aside, we need to remember that the reason for a lot of these insurgencies was the invasion of Libya in 2011, the destruction of Libya, which actually is what led to this uh, explosion of uh, insurgencies across the region. So Mali, one of the victims of this, and France, of course, uh, claiming to come to the rescue, but 
across that region there has been widespread anger against france over the past many years massive protests breaking out leading to a very curious case of a coup where uh, i think and we've talked about this before you have a coup where of course it's uh, led by military officers some of whom were trained uh, in uh, by western powers but who at this point seem to be sort of reflecting what is a larger popular sentiment uh, about the question of sovereignty about the question of uh, opposition to western powers in the aftermath of this there's been closer ties between for instance mali burkina faso there've been talks of closer uh, coordination and collaboration a more regional project so to speak so this constitutional referendum is quite significant in the context of all this it lays a stage for a presidential election uh, but important to remember that the challenges are very uh, severe in fact voting i believe did not take part in one region because the security situation was this bad uh, wagner troops are present uh, in mali uh, wagner is going through its own crisis so some questions there as well but i believe that uh, you know there is uh, some some discussions on that have already been held so very important region to sort of keep an eye on and it's encouraging that a constitutional referendum actually took place was approved it has put some structures in and you know it is sort of trying to convey some of those aspirations which people have at this point interestingly french also demoted uh, to a working language in mali from uh, an official language i think which i which might seem symbolic but goes i think goes to show what the mood on the ground really is that indeed is a case is part of this new mood that's there around the world really you know uh, i'm going to spend the last few minutes on a story that has puzzled me um you know for the last 7 8 maybe decade opec which is the organization of petroleum exporting states opec uh, set up as a cartel among major oil producers to stabilize prices is based in vienna over the last decade or so opec has had an international seminar uh, no prizes to guess the a uh, theme of this year's seminar which will be held next week in, in Vienna Austria it's toward a sustainable and inclusive energy transition i mean you know i could have written that in my sleep and there's probably websites that write sentences like that toward a sustainable and inclusive energy transition sponsored by opec it's the eighth international seminar things seem to be going fine you know head high officials of the vietnamese of the austrian government are, were supposed to attend people coming from the world of oil you know private um uh, sort of consultancy firms were going to be there the big oil companies um major uh, oil ministers from central asia all the way to west africa and so on well one of the principal speakers at the meeting was going to be the saudi oil minister um now it's likely that uh, prince abdul aziz uh, has a reputation he's called a prickly prince by the way has a reputation against being criticized he's the half brother of prince of the crown prince mohammed bin salman so uh, prince abdul aziz was the energy minister he was going to be addressing um, the uh, the conference he is going to be addressing the conference and he has come under some reporting by reuters and bloomberg and others who have in a sense um, gone after him you know because he promised to stabilize oil oil prices and the saudis in um, cooperation with opec plus which includes russia have been trying to uh, cut down on supply in order to raise prices they are all feeling a kind of pressure 
there's a political pressure from countries around the world saying don't please don't raise oil prices but then they have their own domestic pressures uh, where they want to raise oil prices to bring in higher revenues so there's been some negative press for prince abdul aziz and you know in a move that i thought was pretty surprising um the uh, um uh, the the opec administration uh, led by mr algeth Uh, has decided hey listen we're not going to allow reuters we're not going to allow bloomberg we're not going to allow them uh, to come uh, you know to the conference but well, this is not new in october of 2022 at a press conference prince abdul aziz was asked a question by a reuters uh, journalist and he refused to answer the question well later he said reuters did not do a proper job uh he just sort of dismissed the reuters correspondent now they decided they're not going to come well this has had what you would imagine the classical knock on effects the austrians you know have said uh, no sorry we're not coming now uh, because if there's no freedom of press uh, then we're not going to show up well that's an interesting commentary in austria uh, where you know they have their own history with the press and i don't need to uh, rehearse that history uh nonetheless the austrians have decided we are not coming and they, this has created a little bit of a buzz uh, around the world that you know um you have a situation here where where um where the news agencies particularly bloomberg and reuters who have really done a lot on covering opec and maybe also the financial times has done a pretty good job in the english language covering opec but bloomberg reuters not there now the complaint they are making is they are using the language of markets they say for the sake of market transparency we should be there interesting commentary uh, no reuters no bloomberg at the opec meeting no people's dispatch as well this year but perhaps next time people's dispatch and globe trotter will be in vienna you've been listening to give the people what they want brought to you from people's dispatch that zoe prashant next year on our way to austria i'm vijay from globe trotter see you next week